Well, today is a special day. Not just because it's Sunday. Every Sunday morning to be here together is special, right? But this is, this is a very special day. And because this is our fourth Sunday in a row to celebrate and highlight this Sunday, let me ask you this. Who can tell me what is significant about today and about what's coming up this Thursday? And I'll give you a hint. I'm not talking about Halloween and the fact that this is the Sunday before Halloween. I'm not talking about that. Who can tell me? Yeah, there you go, Tim. Been up there enough, right? You haven't missed one. Yeah, today is Reformation Sunday. This, this Thursday is Reformation Day, which makes today the last Sunday in October, Reformation Sunday. And raise your hand if you are familiar with the Reformation. Just lift up, yeah. Y'all been here the past few years, right? Yeah, that's right, that's right. So some of you have been here with us the past few years, and you know that this is an important day for us as Christians. On October 31st, 1517, a theology professor named Martin Luther posted on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, a writing, his 95 Thesis. And in this paper, Luther questioned and challenged the doctrines of the papacy and the practices of the church. Now, what possessed him to do this? Well, that's right. That's right, Ken. The more Luther studied, he was teaching, he was a professor, a theology professor, and the more he studied the scriptures, the, the more he began to see how far the church had drifted from the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, Luther knew something was up early on, but it wasn't until he started studying through the scriptures that he became convinced of this. And in this paper, he questioned and challenged the doctrines of the papacy and the practices of the church. And he was hoping to reform the church from within. See, many viewed this as kind of an act of protest, you know, hammering this on the door of the church. But in that day, the door of the church was, it served as a community bulletin board. So, so Luther was putting up this thesis for, for debate, and he was hoping to reform the church from within, but the leaders in the church at this time, they weren't having it. So instead of opening the door for change, they closed the door on Luther. So Luther, along with other so-called protesters, broke from the church at this time. And what resulted from that break was the start of Protestantism and the spread of Protestant congregations all across Europe. And folks, we as believers and as a church are a product, a result, an outcome of this great reformation. Listen, the reason you're here this morning with your Bibles in hand, in your own language, in various translations... And the reason why we encourage you week in and week out to study your Bibles for yourselves. And the reason why Sunday after Sunday we look to God's Word 
to see what God's Word says and how, and to see how we're to pattern our lives after the teachings in this book that all comes as a result of this great reformation. So we have Martin Luther, other reformers, and most importantly, God, who is behind it all, to thank for this key event in human history and in Christian history. For more information about the man behind the Reformation, Martin Luther, you can get on the web, fellowshipjacksonville.com, and click on sermons, and we've got a couple from the past couple of years. One's entitled, An Event That Changed the World. Another one is Remembering the Reformation. These are the two sermons that I preached the past two years that, that centered on Luther's life in his contributions. But today, we're going we're gonna to change it up a little bit. We're going to do something a bit different. Instead of doing what I've done the past several years and focusing in on this individual, Martin Luther, what I want to do this morning is this. I want us instead to focus upon the key doctrines of the Reformation, the key biblical teachings that were reintroduced by Luther and the other reformers. And some of you, upon hearing that, you're thinking to yourself, why? Why do that? Why take time to focus upon these things? I mean, that was 500 years ago. Yeah, the church was struggling then. Yeah, the church had drifted from these truths, but the church got reformed, and here we are today. That's all behind us, right? Well, here's the thing. Though the church was reformed, though the church did get back on track spiritually and scripturally throughout the history of the church, and to this very day, these doctrines, these fundamental teachings that were reintroduced by the reformers have been challenged and rejected by many in the church. In the church. Many of you have experienced this firsthand. I mean, today in this city and in the surrounding cities, there are churches and there are so-called believers, I call them believers in name only, who deny the deity of Christ, who deny that He is God. They deny the exclusive claims he made. They, they question whether the scriptures are inspired by God. And they also add to and take away from the gospel. You have some who say, you don't need to repent of sin and place your faith in Christ alone to be made right with God. And you have others who say, it's your faith plus good works that make you right with him. Here, in Jacksonville, Texas, in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. There's a good chance some of you in here this morning think in this way. So what I want to do this morning is I want to remind you of the core teachings in Scripture. And my prayer for you this morning is this. If, if, if you're off in any way this morning, when it comes to these doctrines, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would do a great work in you this morning and would redirect you to the truth. During the Reformation, there were five fundamental beliefs that the Reformers believed to be absolutely essential and non-negotiable, and we're going to talk about these this morning. The first was sola 
scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. Scripture alone. This was a key biblical doctrine that was reintroduced by the Reformers during the Reformation. And the reason why was because at this time, authority was a big issue in the church. At the time, though many believed the Scriptures carried with it some weight, that that the Scriptures had some influence, there was a lot of authority also given to extra-biblical church traditions and unbiblical beliefs and teachings and, and practices of the papacy and of the church. When Luther and others began to study the Scriptures, they learned that many of the the doctrines and and practices of the church went completely counter to the teachings of Scripture. So so this teaching of sola scriptura, of Scripture alone, is what resulted. Now, what does this doctrine mean? What do we mean when we say Scripture alone? Well, there are two things we need to grasp, to really grasp this doctrine. First, we need to understand the nature of Scripture, and then we also need to understand the usefulness of Scripture. First, let's talk about the nature of Scripture. When when we say Scripture, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about this right here, right? The Bible. And though it's singular, it's composed of 66 smaller books within this book. And it's divided up into two sections, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. And together they form one book, right? And we as evangelicals, we as believers also believe that there is one author. We believe that God was behind the writings and the compiling of these books. But we also know that within this book, there are many authors, right? So it's a divine book, and it's also a human book. Listen to 2 Timothy 3.16. You have these in your spiritual growth guide, the verses I'm going to mention this morning. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now notice when Paul says all scripture here, he's referring to the Old Testament. But we also learn, though Paul's thinking Old Testament, God, who spoke through Paul, meant all of scripture, old and new. And later in Paul's writings and in the writings of Peter, they will acknowledge that the New Testament books also authored by God as well, which is why myself and others use this verse here in 2 Timothy to mean all of the Bible, all of Scripture. And notice Paul says here, he says all of Scripture is breathed out by God. Now your translations may say something a bit different, but I really like the way the ESV translates this here because that's what that word means. It comes straight out of, straight from the mouth of God. The words of Scripture come straight from the mouth of God. That's what Paul's saying. Therefore, get this, Scripture carries with it the weight of God himself. It came from his mouth and carries with it his authority Just like parents, if you left a note for your kids, that note carries with it your authority, doesn't it? Same is true with the Scriptures. 
the Bible is God-breathed, comes from the mouth of God and it carries with it His authority. The same authority as if He spoke it directly and audibly to you and me. Now again, though that's the case, it's also written by men as well, right? It's from God, but there's also human authorship. Though the Bible came from the mouth of God, it also came from the minds and the mouths of men. And you see this when you read different books of Scripture. If you were to spend time and study each of the books individually, what you would find is there's a lot of different writing styles within the Bible. Different education levels of the writer. Different personalities that come through the writing. They're different because they're different human authors. But though that's the case, these books are also divine. They come from the minds and the mouths of men, and they also come from the mind and the mouth of God. Listen to what Peter said about it. First, uh, 2 Peter 1.21, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, though this process of inspiration is somewhat mysterious, Peter gives us an idea of what the process is like here. He explains here, men spoke using their own personalities from their own intelligence, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the nature of Scripture, this is what we're talking about. 66 books of the Bible written by various authors over an extended period of time with one divine author, God himself. Now let's talk about the usefulness of the scriptures. Let's look again at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice here the usefulness of Scripture. Scripture benefits us in a variety of ways, doesn't it? It's given to us by God, and it's profitable for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us, for growing us, so that we may be complete and equipped and ready for some good works. No. For every good work. Every good work. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Now let me ask you this. Does this doctrine teach us that Scripture is our only authority, period? What do you think? We have other authorities, don't we? We do. But get this. The Bible is our only perfect authority. It's our highest authority. It's the authority by which all other authority is measured. So all other writings, all other teachings, all other beliefs and practices are to be measured by the Word of God. And this is what Martin Luther was wanting in 1517. He saw many of the teachings and the practices of the church as being in conflict with the Scriptures. So he wanted the beliefs and the teachings of the leaders in the church to be brought under the authority of Scripture. He wanted them to be measured by the Word of God, but they refused, which is why 
he and other reformers embraced this doctrine that said scripture alone is our ultimate authority it's our highest authority it's our only perfect authority why because it's god breathed comes to us straight from the mouth of god and i know what some of you are thinking here this morning some of you are thinking okay you know that was then this is now Though they were struggling with this doctrine in the 1500s, we're far removed from that situation today. Why focus upon it? Well, the answer is really, really simple. The reason we need to give more attention to this doctrine today is because the message of Paul and the message of Luther has been lost on many in our world today, especially in our churches. In this generation as it's been in every generation since the Reformation, there's always temptation within the church for people within the church to step out from under the authority of the Scriptures. There are a few reasons for this. One, I believe, is because many question the nature of Scripture. And two, many question the usefulness of the scriptures. There are many in our churches today and, and elsewhere who do not believe the Bible is God-breathed. They believe it's a well-written book with good principles that we need to learn and follow, but not divine. Therefore, it carries with it no more weight than any other book. Its doctrines are no more significant than any other book. There are many others who, though they may think rightly about the nature of the Bible, they're not benefiting from its teachings because they don't really see it as being useful. There are some people within the church, if they were honest, they think the teachings in this book are dated. That they're not applicable for today. And to be honest with you, many churches believe this. Even though they won't come out and say it, you know how you know? Because they refuse to teach from it. And they refuse to challenge their people to become students of it. May that never be said of us, folks. May that never be said of this church. Because, folks, according to Paul, how are we made complete? How are we equipped for every good work? Through being taught, rebuked, corrected and trained by the word of God. Listen, I want you to get this. I want you to write this down. I want you to let this soak deep. You will only be as strong spiritually as you are knowledgeable biblically. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. You will only be as strong spiritually as you are knowledgeable biblically. How many of y'all like hot tea? Anybody like drinking a hot tea? I love hot tea. I like mine strong, do y'all? Love strong tea, like anything caffeinated, but especially tea. Many of you know, if you know anything about hot tea, you know to make the tea strong, you have to let the tea bag steep in hot water for a while. The longer the tea bag steeps in the water, the darker the water gets, which means the stronger the drink, right? In the same way, The strength of our faith is directly contingent upon the amount of time we allow ourselves to be steeped in the Word of God. 
Folks, we will never be where we need to be as believers and as a church until we begin to value what's in here and what's taught in here and what's taught in our equipping classes and our FBU classes and other Bible studies. You will only be as strong spiritually as you are knowledgeable biblically. Paul tells us that. I've had people ask me in the past, how do we get people passionate about serving the Lord? The answer is here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The way to get people passionate about the Lord, the way to get people equipped for every good work is through being taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained by the Word of God. Well, there's another fundamental belief that the reformers believed to be absolutely essential and non-negotiable. The first was sola scriptura. The second was sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone. Grace alone. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You have this in your spiritual growth guide as well. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, I'm thankful for that phrase there, aren't you? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. I love that text. I don't think there is a better passage on God's grace in all the Bible than that right there. In this passage, Paul does two things. He tells us who we were, prior to salvation, and then he tells us what God has done for us in spite of who we were. First, let's focus upon who we were. Notice this verse says, the the beginning of of verse 1 says, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Notice Paul doesn't say here you were sick with sin, you were hindered by sin. He says you were dead. Who in here would agree with me that there's a difference between being sick and being dead? Somebody? Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you to stretch yourselves a little more. This may sound a little strange. But I want you to think about how being sick hinders you and then think about how being dead would hinder you. That should give you a better idea of who you were prior to salvation. It's what Paul says. The Greek word for dead means dead. In verses 2 through 3, Paul goes on to explain the lifestyle of a spiritually dead person. He says, he or she follows the course of this world. He or she follows the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. He or she lives in the passions of the flesh and carries out the desires of the body and mind and is by nature a child of wrath. In other words, pretty bad. He says a spiritually dead person is a slave to the evils of this world, a slave to the temptings and promptings of Satan, and a slave to the wicked ways of the flesh. So Paul is describing a person here who is completely at odds with God. 
Believers, that's who we were prior to salvation. We were opposed to God in every way, and this condition was was permanent. It, it, It was fixed, unchanging. It was a fixed state, Paul says. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were in a fixed state, dead spiritually, nothing we could do about it. Now, in Luther's day, though the church taught that people were sinners... There was what was called works of satisfaction. Those in the church at this time taught that through performing certain tasks, one could be restored to God in a a sense and be once again in in somewhat of a right standing with Him. There were different degrees to this, and Luther even carried out some of these so-called works of satisfaction. Yet he found them very unsatisfying. And again... He had a sense of his utter corruptness and his sinfulness early on, but it wasn't until he began his his teaching career when he began to study the Scriptures that he came to understand that God clearly tells us in His Word that we are dead and we are in a fixed and unchanging and unalterable state if left to ourselves. We are dead spiritually. We are enemies of God. There's nothing we can do about it. Luther came to this realization by studying passages like this one here in a Ephesians, but he also learned, though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, get this, God alone has made a way for us to be right with him. Look at verse 4 again of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with God. Christ. Paul tells us here, though we were dead in sin without a hope in the world, folks, God did something about it. Because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, God has made us alive in Christ. Folks, this is what is meant by grace alone. On the one hand, this doctrine teaches us that there are no works of satisfaction that can be done by us to make ourselves right with God. But it also teaches us that God has done it all. Our salvation is solely a work of God. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, believe it or not, many in our world today, many in our churches still believe in works of satisfaction. Now, some of them, some people might not come out and say it, but you can tell by their actions. You can tell by what they believe. That they don't believe man to be dead to sin, just sick with sin or hindered by sin. Because they still believe there's something that can be done by us. Now, if we're dead, we can't do anything. So they don't believe that. There are some who believe there's something we bring to the table when it comes to salvation. They think, I'm trying my best to be good. Surely that counts for something. This is the mentality of many in our world, and that was the mentality of of some in Paul's day and, and the mentality of many in Luther's day. And our message today should be the same as Paul's and Luther's to those in our day. We're saved by grace alone. By grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. 
It's from God. It's a gift of God. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. That's the doctrine of grace alone. Another belief the Reformers believed to be absolutely essential and non-negotiable was sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. Listen to Ephesians 2 once again. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This too is in your spiritual growth guide. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's the thing. Many of us still think, like we said in a previous point, that there's something we bring to the table, there's something we can do to get us out of this desperate state. We still think that our works count for something when it comes to salvation. And this was taught in Luther's day. They said, for one to be saved, they must come not just by faith, but also with good works. You see, the church at this time, they didn't have a problem with saying we're saved by faith. They didn't like the word sola, which means alone. That's what they took issue with. if, If the reformers would have said we're saved by faith, many in the church would have been like, yes, we are. And it's accompanied with our works of satisfaction, right? But when Luther and the other reformers started studying the scriptures, they began to realize that scripture teaches we're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. There's nothing we bring to the table. Salvation is God's doing. We were dead in sin, as Paul says in the first part of Ephesians 2. We were dead, but God has made us alive. Here's how it works. God does a work in us. Guess what? That work that God does in us, it works. And it awakens us to faith. And it enables us to place our faith in Christ. That's how it works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a gift. It's not a reward. It's unmerited, undeserved. It's not earned or warranted. God declares people to be not guilty when they come by faith alone. Remember the lyrics to the song I've quoted for you many, many times from Rock of Ages that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. What the writer's essentially saying is this, I bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation, but simply come by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. So we've talked about scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone. Next alone is Christ alone. This is a phrase, sola Christo, Christ alone. This doctrine basically says that we're saved by Christ alone and that he is the only mediator between God and man. A few verses here. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is speaking here about Jesus, and he makes this point as clear as can be. He says there's salvation in no one else, no other, other than Jesus, Christ alone, sola Christo. Pretty clear, right? Listen to what Paul said, 1 Timothy 2, 5. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One more. Listen to what Jesus had to say about it. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty clear. Christ alone. Now, some of you might be thinking, why did Luther and the other reformers have to reintroduce this teaching in the Christian faith? I mean, this is, this is essential. Well, in Luther's day, there are many in the church that believe when a person died, they went to purgatory, and they were detained there for a time, and they were dependent upon the intercession of the faithful in the church to be released from purgatory or have years taken off their life in purgatory. At this time, in the church, the church believed that one could do certain works on behalf of a friend or family member to reduce time spent in purgatory. Well, when Luther and the other reformers began to study the scriptures, they came to realize that there's only one with the ability to save. There's only one true intercessor, one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus alone. They learn that salvation is not a work we can do for ourselves, not a work we can do on behalf of someone else. There's only one who's able to save, and that is Christ. Now, why is it important for us to spend time and focus upon this today? Well, I'll tell you. Because we live in a day and age where it's not popular to take a strong stance on anything. I don't know a whole lot about stocks, very little. But I do know this, it's, it's not wise to take everything and put it in one place, right? It's a wiser move to spread out your investments, diversify your investments. And I think many people think in this way when it comes to spiritual matters. They think, you know, there's a lot of different beliefs out there, so I'm just going to avoid investing in just one, and I'm going to give credence to several. This is what is called pluralism. And it's on the rise in our culture today. Studies have shown today that people are becoming much more spiritual but less and less religious, which means that they're not ascribing to any one set of religious beliefs or practices. They think to play it safe, to avoid getting it wrong, I'll just say all religious roads lead to God. There, I'll cover my basis. Here's the problem with that reasoning. The claims made about Christ and that Christ made about himself are exclusive. They leave no room for any other way. Jesus said, I am the way. Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. So there's no other way. Only Christ. Sola Christo. Christ alone. So we've covered four of the five. Four of the five alones of the Reformation. We've looked at Scripture alone. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. There's one last doctrine that was introduced in the 1500s by the Reformers, and that is soli deo gloria, which is Latin for, for the glory of God alone. In the 1500s, life of people in the church had become compartmentalized. And what that meant was many viewed life in two separate realms. You had the sacred lives of the monks and the papacy and the other religious leaders, and then you had the secular life, which was embodied by the common man. 
But as Luther and the other reformers began to study the scriptures, they came to the realization that life is not to be compartmentalized in this way. They believed and taught that all of life is sacred. All of life is to be centered upon God and lived unto Him and for His glory. Said that God is to be supreme over every aspect of a believer's life. And, and Scripture clearly teaches this, doesn't it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John MacArthur, when speaking on this verse, he said this is the bottom line on the Christian life. And I agree. Paul here tells us the primary reason we were put on this earth. He says the reason we're here is to glorify God in all that we do. And and let's be honest, this is important for us to remember today, isn't it? Because we tend to compartmentalize our lives. We view this time here at 1030 every Sunday as to be the, the sacred time, the time of worship, right? And Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, that's time to worry about the things of the world. But notice Paul tells us we're not to be divided as believers. He says, whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Folks, that's what we were put on this earth to do. We were put on this earth to bring glory to God. We were put on this earth to know God and to live for Him. So let me ask you today a simple question to end. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Listen, I know some people better than others in this room, but there's one thing that I know about each and every one of you. I know what you were put on this planet to do. It's to know God and to live for Him and for His glory. So the question is, do you know Him? If you don't, I pray you would come to know Him today. Maybe you're here this morning. God's been working on your heart and he has made it clear to you that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Maybe you know now for the first time you are dead to your sin. There's nothing that you bring to the table. Therefore, you need to come before Christ and you need to have nothing in your hands and solely cling to him and trust in him for faith. I pray you would today if you've never made that decision. If you've yet to make that decision, I pray that by grace alone, you would come to place your faith alone in Christ alone today so that you can live the rest of your days to the glory of God alone. Let's pray.